The European Patent Office podcasts bring you an insight into the technology and innovation shaping the world. Understanding the types of intellectual property rights, their implications and timing are key to knowing what's right for you and your business. But this often requires expertise and sound product and market knowledge, mostly mastered by professionals. In this podcast, our guest Root will discuss the role of patent attorneys, how they can provide excellent advice on IP types, and help you define the assets that you want to protect and become a valuable business partner for you. My name is Alison Campbell, CEO of the Government Office for Technology Transfer in the UK. It's great to be able to team up with the EPO to bring you this podcast series and help you understand the power of IP as a key commercial asset to your business. I'm talking today with Ruth Herbjordsen, who runs Trona Patent Radgivning. Ruth's a European patent attorney and an authorized Swedish patent attorney. She's got a wealth of experience advising clients, both large and small, on all aspects of IP strategy and management. So who better to talk to about protecting intellectual property assets than Ruth? You've got a wealth of experience um, in this area. I'm so pleased to be talking to you today. Thank you so much. And what I'd love to do to open up is perhaps talk to you about the topic in hand that our listeners will be really interested in, which are what are the different types of intellectual property? Sure. I work almost exclusively with patents and, and patents. I think most people are aware that they protect technical inventions, so technical solutions to problems, uh, which does not necessarily mean that it has to be very, very high tech, you know, with lots of um, moving parts and, and, and very, very advanced technology. My very first patent application, actually, when I was a new patent attorney, was uh, relating to an ice scraper for scraping ice off car windows. So basically a simple plastic rectangle and it was still granted. But there has to be some sort of technical effect from a patent. That's excellent. There's also other kinds of protection, aren't there? I think you can. there's, there's design rights, there's copyrights, and a- another one that, that's quite popular is, is trademark. And in fact, in podcast one, we were talking to Maya, who's the CEO of a company, and she'd use both patents and trademarks. Could you just tell us very briefly what a trademark actually covers? Yes, well, a trademark is often called a, a brand or a logo, and it's uh, usually a visual mark comprising an image and or some text. It can have some other form now too, but it's it's an identifier of the product so that you will, when you see a car, for example, or a, a bottle of soda or whatever, you will know, oh, it's this kind of car or it's this kind of soda. Oh, very good. And how does that differ from, say, a design right? A design right there is some overlap, actually, but a design right protects the design of something. So the way it looks, the overall visual impression of it. So even if a design has a technical function, for example, it can be a, a spare part for a car or something like that. When it comes to design protection, it's only the way it looks that's considered for that. Then, of course, there's copyright. Now, that covers many different kinds of areas, doesn't it? In, in, in my mind, I often think of it in terms of literary and artistic works. But I, I guess the definition is, is slightly broader and the coverage is slightly broader than that. Yes, it protects uh, a number of types of or really all types of creative works. So, as you say, literature, art, paintings and sculptures and things like that, but also architecture 
buildings, musical works, of course, films, plays, and that kind of thing. Uh, and also, to a very limited extent, it can cover computer programs. Now, that's very interesting. And I think that's something that um, we will come along to in just a moment. But one of the things that I, I did just, just want to ask you very briefly about these different kinds of intellectual property right, they have different ways of protecting them and that they have different terms, don't they? Now, copyright is is the one where actually you, you've almost got an automatic right. It belongs with the author, if I'm, if I'm right there. Whereas with the other kinds of right, you actually have to go and, and file for some kind of, of protection. Do I have that right? Well, for patents, you have to file a patent application and, and prosecute it and have it granted and pay a lot of fees and, and things like that. For designs, there are some unregistered rights, but if you want to be sure, you should register your design. Also, for trademarks, you can register your trademark and it's a safe way of ensuring that it's treated as your trademark. You can also just go ahead and use a trademark and, and if, if it gets recognized as your trademark, it will be seen as such even if you haven't actually registered it. Copyright is different because in most European jurisdictions, as far as I know, you cannot register it. It's sort of either it it happens or it doesn't. So, But the creative work that's to be protected as or seen as copyright protected has to have a certain originality to it. Uh, otherwise, you don't, it's not considered to have a copyright. And it has to be from the creator's own creative activity, so to speak. But you don't know that until it's been tried in court. Do you have an example to mind, Ruth? There have been some situations where different bands or different performers have been arguing who actually wrote a particular song, for example, and also, even worse, perhaps, some rather nasty band breakups where former members of the same band have been discussing who actually should have the copyrights to a particular song that maybe they wrote together or one feels that, that he wrote more of than someone else or something like that. But then, of course, when you talk about being tried in court, that, that's really an, in a situation where another party might turn around and say, you're infringing our copyright. So for most people in terms of copyright, they don't have to do anything particularly active and they don't actually have to go before the court. These things might only happen if any rights get challenged. And that, that might be something that we can touch on a little later. And it's something that we, we have also touched on in our other podcast when we were actually looking at the, the, the scope of rights and, and explaining the breadth of rights that you can get through protecting IP and, and what that allows you to do in respect of, of other parties. In talking about these different kinds of IP protection, one of, one of the, the, the sort of key things that, that comes to mind for me is... Um, in terms of that visual, is the the Dyson hairdryer, for example, which th there's a lovely example there of using many different kinds of IP protection. Now, I don't think the majority of our listeners will necessarily be coming up with an, a novel new hairdryer, but I've always been very interested in that because that's a real example of protecting technology through patenting. It's got a very unique look to it. So there's there's design rights in there. There's a trademark around the type of Dyson that that hairdryer has got a very special name. And they've actually even put copyright against the, the instruction manual that, that goes with it. So absolutely fascinating in terms of how you can you can put, you know, get get a get a mix of, of IP. 
But I guess one of the interesting things, and you touched on it just before, is software. And that's quite a kind of changing area in terms of how you can protect software. Could we talk a little bit more about that? Because there's a couple of ways of doing that, aren't there? Well, yes. As I said, to some extent, computer programs can be copyright protected, but that is really only for direct copying of the program. So if you produce a pirate copy of something and try to sell that, that will be could be a copyright infringement. So that's very, very limited. A patent, of course, has a provides a different kind of protection because it protects the the underlying algorithm or the underlying principle of how this invention actually works. So if you have a patent for a software product, it will prevent anyone else from exploiting the same idea, even if they write their own program that looks different. Patent protection for for computer programs is actually a very, very important addition to this, uh, since copyrights don't really protect the underlying idea of the program only the way it was actually written by someone and only if that is actually copied by someone who is looking at it. Here's the thing, you know, how does a um, company or an inventor decide what kind of, of protection is, is right for them? Have you had any experience of, of dealing with companies and, and how they approach this or how you'd recommend people approach this? It has to be determined on a case-by-case basis, of course, and you have to look at what is it we want to have protection for? Uh, but you also have to look at how fast do we want this protection? Is it okay for us to wait a few years until we actually have a registered right? Or do we want something as soon as possible? And how much money do we have to spend on this? But if money is, is not an issue, maybe you will want to start with both the design protection for the way something is actually designed, the look of it, because you can get that as a registered right fairly quickly. And at the same time, apply, apply for a patent, which will protect eventually the, the underlying principle of it. It will be more work to, to produce a patent application and it will be at a higher cost. It will also take longer before you actually have a registered right. But those two can actually complement each other very nicely. If there is something that has both a unique shape or design and actually has a a function that can also be patented. So I'm just going to interrupt you there because I, I really like that idea of actually thinking quite strategically around this, uh, not just in terms of what assets do I want to protect, but actually that strategic thinking, which is what's the order and phasing of this? And I guess that's that's very helpful as well in terms of thinking of your your product or service development um, and how far you've, you've got with that and when the appropriate time is to, to take out um, protection, as much as it is around thinking about how do, how do I actually plan my, my budget spend? And I have to say on that piece, that, that's something I, I'd really like to talk to you about as well. I mean, you've started a business yourself and you know the value of protecting IP, but also that it can be quite costly. To a certain extent, the answer could be, you know, how long is a piece of string? There isn't a very precise answer, but can you maybe give the listeners an idea of the the average costs of, of protection that they might need to encounter or be ready for? I think in any case, this is something that you should discuss with your attorneys, actually, because it can differ between different countries and also on a case-to-case basis, actually, I think something very 
complex can cost a lot of money to protect, whereas something that's quite simple will be a lot less expensive. And it depends on how many countries you want. And so there are, of course, the official fees, which are basically the same no matter what. But then there are also the attorney's fees and the attorney's costs, which can be quite substantial. So those official fees will be the the fee that the relevant intellectual property office in any country will charge you. Let's say if we think about patenting, it might be the time you you first file your patent application, there'll just be a, a direct cost associated with that. And then where we're talking about the attorney's fees, that's around getting in the, the professional help to help you get that that initial filing right and also to maybe help you think what else is is out there in the marketplace so that you can be sure that you're, you're positioning uh, what it is that you're trying to protect correctly to give you the maximum chance of, of getting it granted. Exactly. And I guess uh, there's different costs as well associated with, and we, we can come back to, to patenting in a minute, but probably different costs associated with, uh, say, filing a trademark or a, a design right, and, and probably different levels of what we might call management and prosecution to, to get those, those, um, those marks or those rights granted. Um, patenting is, is the, is the usually the longer process, isn't it? It's a, it's the longer one. Yes. Both from uh, a point of view of getting everything ready for filing because you have to write everything down for a patent and, and you have to be careful about your, your phrasing, your choice of words, that everything should be technically correct, but also written to be as future proof as possible. So it's, 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 uh, quite a lot of work if you want to do it properly, whereas uh, design protection can be obtained a lot more easily by, by uh, submitting drawings. I mean, there are formal requirements of the drawings, of course, but it's a, a much easier process than, than uh, preparing a patent application. And that brings me to ask you the question, you know, very close to, to your heart and your professional skill set. What's the role of a patent attorney? If somebody is coming new to this, this sort of space and they're, they're looking for somebody to, to work with, what kind of features and characteristics do you think they should be looking for? When you start talking to a patent attorney, of course, it's, it's uh, easy perhaps to think that, oh, a patent attorney writes patent applications and helps you patent things. But I think the role of a patent attorney in modern times should be a, a lot broader than that, actually. We have an advisory role of, of finding out what is this item that you're actually seeking protection for? Do we think it's worthwhile? How much money do you have? How, what is realistic for you? Where are you? In which countries are you active or are your competitors active and things like that? And maybe sometimes even say, you know, I really don't think you should try to patent this. I think you should go for design protection perhaps, or I think you should have a, instead create a a good marketing strategy and a good trademark and go for that instead. So I think the the role of a patent attorney these days is not necessarily to say, oh yeah, you have something here, we can patent it, let's do it. But to say, yeah, we can, but is it really the best path forward for you at this stage? Or is it something else that you should sort of focus your, your efforts on? That's really encouraging to hear. Um, and, and I think I, I certainly know when I talk to entrepreneurs and, and small business owners that it can sometimes be quite challenging to really understand what you've got in, in terms of it and, you know, that intellectual property asset and 
what kind of protection you might need. And I, very interesting to hear you say there, well, maybe it's not a patent. Perhaps you might be better advised to go for, for a design right. And I know I was, I was talking to uh, somebody uh, earlier in the week and, you know, between us, you know, I was thinking, well, you know, you, you could consider this or you could consider that and you might even consider that kind of a right. And my advice was actually go, go and talk to um, an IP advisor or an IP attorney, somebody who's really well versed in this, because it may be that you think you can get rights in all these different areas, but strategically, it's best if you just go for, for one or the other. So it's so a really, really good to hear you um, say that because it, it can be daunting. And, and I think that the way you've described it there, it's very much the the patent attorney almost as a business partner, which is, I think, quite, quite as I say, quite an encouraging way to, to look at it. You were mentioning there now different countries and that's also useful for people to think about strategically, isn't it, in terms of where they plan to make their product, for example, and where they intend to market the product or the service offering or, or whatever. And it's not necessarily just combined to, to, to one country. So is it possible to go and seek, uh, say, patent protection in different countries? And what's, what's the route to getting there? There are different routes, actually. And that's also something that a patent attorney should be able to help you with, figuring out the best route to the geographical coverage that you that you need depending on your situation normally you would start by filing in one country perhaps or by filing in the EPO and then later on you can file in other countries as well and there are some cooperations that you can use to save some costs at least at least initially and to make the process more efe- efficient for you but ultimately a patent right is geographically limited to normally to one country actually so if the um, Swedish patent office grants a patent that patent will be valid in Sweden for example only maybe in a year or so when the, the unitary patent protection will come there will be a a number of EU countries where you can have protection in one go, so to speak. But but ultimately, at this point, uh, a patent is geographically limited to one country. So you need to think about which countries do I need and how do I get there in the best way. And you 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 mentioned there being able to use different kinds of cooperations, and I think that that's a great thing about the patent system. Many of many of the the patent offices, many of the different countries and territories, actually all have a common agreement and understanding between them. So it's, whilst you might have to get your patent granted in an individual country, it's possible to be able to use your initial filing as a, as a platform to do that. So so listeners shouldn't feel that from the get-go, they've got to go and think about filing in every country in Europe plus the USA, plus China, for example. They can actually take their time. They can make an initial filing. When they get to the end of that phase, 12 months out, they can then move on to thinking of using that piece of, protect, not protection, but the patent application that they've they filed then. They can use that as a springboard and begin to go through a process of internationalization, choosing the different countries that they might want to go into. Um, so they've got some time to think strategically strategically about where they need to go and also thinking about that in terms of where they're making and, and marketing their, their product, which is always very helpful, I think. Ownership now, Ruth, is, is another 
area that, that, that often comes up. And you really need to make sure, I think, particularly if you have staff, that you actually own the rights that you're trying to, to protect. But it's not necessarily always that straightforward, is it? This is a matter of national law. So within the uh, contracting states of the EPO, there are 38 different legislations covering this. So quite often it will be like if you're an employer and your employees make inventions that are linked to to your business area, there is some right to to acquire those those inventions and, and apply for patents on them or or they automatically go to the employer. It differs between different contracting states. So you really, really have to know what is the case in the country where, where you're actually operating. And it can also differ between is it an employee or is it a consultant that we've hired to do this, for example? So you, you need to figure out what's actually, what's the case for, for your, your country, actually. And that's really just a question of, of making sure that if you're, if you're coming up with, with intellectual property within a, a company environment rather than as a, as a, a sort of solo entrepreneur or, or inventor, you just need to be sure of, um, your local employment law and make sure that you've got the right kinds of employment contracts in place. It's case by case and it's, it's really important to just be aware of that as you would be as a business owner um, in any kind of situation. It's also important as an employee to make sure that you understand what your rights are and also I think what your obligations to your employer are as well so that you can, you can all be on track. And that that brings me just very briefly before we wrap up to, to think a little bit about confidentiality and, and not necessarily how we protect confidentiality amongst our staff, but it brings me on to thinking about trade secrets, which is not necessarily a protectable right, but it's also a very valuable way of, of a person or an organization protecting some of their, their assets. Have, have you found that to be the case? Oh, yes, absolutely. And it's it's an alternative to patenting because if you apply for a patent on something, of course, that patent application will be published after 18 months. So by definition, it can't be kept a secret. So there are different levels of, I mean, you can, you can always say, oh, we'll try to keep this secret instead of patenting it for some reason, financial reasons, or it will be very difficult to see if our competitors are if our competitors are actually doing this. But there is actually a, a concept called a trade secret. There is an EU directive defining what is considered a trade secret and in which cases there is actually some legal protection for trade secrets. The requirements are quite strict. It has to be something that's actually secret and it has to have value to your organization because it's kept secret. And then you have to have a lot of measures in place to actually ensure that it's kept a secret, both in terms of making sure that everybody who works with it knows that you want this kept as a trade secret, but also technical measures to make sure that nobody else can access it by, by accident, so to speak. So there's, there is a legal system in place for protecting trade secrets, but it's actually quite strict. That's very interesting and, and, and incredibly helpful to hear you say, because it's more than simply, let's all keep quiet about this. It's still about active protection 
of a trade secret, although it may be in, in a slightly different way. I find that very useful to know, actually, and not something that I'd, I'd appreciated previously. So thank you for sharing that. But this brings us towards the, the end of our conversation and towards the end of this, this podcast. The, the takeaways for me here have been very much, you know, there may be a, a great mix of different types of protection you need for your intellectual property. And that will really help you maximize the value of your assets. And I think when I found really useful was within that mix, thinking about timing as well, both in terms of strategy and, and budget. I definitely um, heard you say the importance of talking to an IP professional and finding the, the, the right person fit for you and for your business needs. And don't be afraid of shopping around to, to, to find the right person to and firm to work with. And then the, the other take home for me was really think strategically and plan ahead. You use the word future-proofing, and, and I guess that's a lot of what IP protection is really about. Within that, that's focus on what really matters for the business and then make sure that you're protecting it in, in the right way. I found that usually informative. I hope our listeners did too. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Thank you, Alison. It was lovely to be here. Thank you. Now, before we end, it would just be good to remind listeners that this is just one in a series of podcasts and you can tune in to, to listen to others in the series where you can hear more about scope of intellectual property. You can hear a little bit more about transactions related to IP, at where to find help resources and information. And in our first podcast of the series, listen to a real life example as to how intellectual property has really driven value for a business. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the European Patent Office's podcast channel, Talk Innovation at epo.org or on your favourite podcast platform. Let's Talk Innovation.